0: That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot slash judging Megan to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince dot com slash judging Megan. And now back to the podcast. Well, hello, everybody. You are listening to Judging Megan with your host, Megan Judge. Really quickly before I start, um, I wanted to remind you that you can use my promo code for BarkBox. I'm obsessed with it. Um, I get a monthly little like package every month for my dogs. Ruthie, last night, real quick side story, came downstairs and I had bought a bag of bagels and for my younger daughter and Ruthie went on, jumped on the counter and ate the entire bag. So, um, the, the good thing about BarkBox is it might be like a little bit of, if you have a naughty dog, like my, my, one of my two labs, BarkBox is the best thing ever. She gets her, her toys, she shreds them to pieces. The minute she gets them, they're all hidden in the backyard and I don't know, all over the place. And if you use my code judging Megan, you can go to my website, judgingmegan.com and you're, if you do an order for your first six months or, or a year, you get a free month of toys and organic treats for your dog. So head over to my website, judgingmegan.com, or BarkBox, and use my code, and I am going to start the show. Okay, everyone, I have to tell you really quickly um, I usually have some sort of story that I want to talk about in the beginning of m- my episodes, and I like to make it light. but i I mean to tell you, I have really been kind of struggling lately. And I'm very open about that on social media. So if you follow me at Judging Megan or on TikTok, which I don't even understand, or any of my social media platforms, I really like to be upfront with how I'm feeling. I think just like everything that's going on in the world right now is just so overwhelming. Um, I kind of feel like I'm in this like weird alternate universe where, you know, everybody has fought so hard to, you know, have rights and um, I, I just feel like it's bad news all the time. Like another shooting happened on July 4th. Um you know Roe v Wade was overturned whatever your stance is on that I obviously am pro choice and have a real issue with um some of the states especially under the circumstances of rape or you know incest or anything like that I just think this is not okay so I hate to be political on the podcast but I just needed to start out by saying that If any of you are feeling extra upset or struggling with your mental health, remember, you can always reach out to a friend, talk to somebody, um, go to your, see your therapist. There's, there's a lot of um, colleges offer free therapy for, you know, students that might be training to become psychologists or psychiatrists. So there's always resources. You just kind of have to be creative how you find them. one of the biggest things in my personal life and dream of mine is that mental health and uh, should be free for everybody mental health care sorry that should just be something that everybody should be able to get help if they need help if they're suffering and I am going to introduce my my guest Martin Lockett hi Martin how are you
1: doing wonderful how are you doing today
0: I'm good. Did I get too like political and make you uncomfortable in the beginning of the episode? I really hate when I do that.
1: Well, no, not at all. And I just want to say, I appreciate the, the, you know, kind of public service announcement for mental health awareness. I actually work on the national suicide prevention line and a really cool thing on July 16th nationwide, I don't know if you've already heard about it in your state, but it's been advertised certainly here in Pennsylvania and other places. So 988 is going to be the National Behavioral Crisis Line. So we have 911 for emergencies, obviously. This is for a, a behavioral health crisis. If you are struggling, having a really hard day, need someone to talk to. You can call 988 and you will talk to somebody like me or a slew of my other very well-trained professional colleagues who would love to be able to be that ally when you need it. So right now, the number is 1-800-273-8255. That is 1-800-273-8255. But on July 16th, it will be 988. So please do use it, people.
0: Okay. Well, now I'm even more obsessed with you than I was before because (laughs) I, I'm all about, I'm a mental health podcaster. I struggled with my own, um, mental health, um, which my listeners know about. And, um, a funny story. I hate to say it's funny, but I did have a guest on Kate, um, a few, like probably last month. And she talked about the loss of her son, to suicide. And, um, some of the statistics I've been posting lately for, for kids, they're at the, we're at the highest suicide rates that we've ever seen, and especially children between the ages of 10 and 24. So after I recorded with Kate, I saw this post and I was like, how did I not know about 988? I reached out to her, like, I don't know if you know this. But this is becoming a national thing, and she she tried to be like really polite about it. Like I guess she's known about it forever, but I had just found out about it the same day. And in my head, I kind of thought it was some sort of sign. But it's a step; it's a baby step, right? Like there's so much work to be done, but just to know that that is something that is being done is it it makes me happy. I don't know how you exactly. feel exactly.
1: Well, no, I absolutely love it. And you're right. Our youth, especially during you know the last two, two and a half years and the isolation from not being able to go to school and see their peers and have after school sports and people. I mean, people are social creatures by nature. Right. And when we are struggling, that's when we need people the most. We don't do well in isolation when we are struggling. That's the worst possible scenario that we could find ourselves in. And so, you know, kids have have been struggling mightily. And like you said, rates of suicide have gone up. Substance use disorder has gone up across the board, but especially with young people who are grappling to cope. And so I also work on the youth line and the youth line is a really cool line where. Um, so it's open 24 seven, but kids can actually call during a six hour period every day to actually speak with youth volunteers. We have incredible young people who get out of school right now, they're all for the summer. So they come down at four o'clock Pacific time. They're there until 10 o'clock Pacific time and they will text with their peers. They will talk to them over the phone. These are young people who have gone through their own mental health issues and suicidal ideation. And now they mm-hmm. have, you know, found ways to cope and they're, they're more than willing, more than happy to, to help their fellow peers who are struggling. And so that's a, that's a real joy to be a part of that as well.
0: Can you, first of all, that's I'm. That's amazing that you do these things. And I knew when I read your bio and you reached out to me, I was like, I'm going to like this person. <laughs> can you tell me, is that a national youth line or is it just where in your region? No. It's
1: national. So, so we're based out of Portland, Oregon. And so all of our young volunteers, okay. they come down to the office in Portland, but the line is national. The the youth it, line can is Can you national.
0: share that in case I have... You know, I have a lot of people that listen that might be suffering with depression or gone through some sort of trauma. I don't really have kids that listen, but I think it's important that parents have have the resources. If you want to share it at the end, we can do that.
1: Absolutely. Um, I'm just pulling it up here. You see me looking at my other screen. I should know that number by heart. I don't, but I have it right here on the screen uh, ready to share. Okay. What
0: is it real quick? So and we'll share it at the
1: it end is, It is 877-968. 8491. And then if, if they're not comfortable talking to a teen or anyone, they can text the word teen and then the number two teen. So teen to teen. And they're going to text that to 839863.
0: Eight, okay. That's amazing, Martin. Well, I I hated to go off on that tangent, but that's so important. This is what the podcast is all about. This is what Lane, we're both in, obviously. But I'm having you on because I find your story one of true inspiration, one of um, a story that I think is really important for listeners and people to know in general, because it's there, it's just inspirational. So I want you to just start with where you grew up and tell me about your life growing up.
1: Sure. So I grew up in Northeast Portland in the eighties. And at that time, it's drastically different today. Let me just say you wouldn't recognize it, but in the eighties during the, the height of the crack epidemic and gangs were on the rise fighting for territory. So it was very impoverished. It was crime ridden. There were drive-bys. There was prostitution. It was it was a cesspool, if I'm being honest with you. But the good thing is, I grew up with a loving mom and a loving dad who, you know, were married. We were under the same roof. My siblings and me. I have a twin brother and and two older sisters. And so dad worked hard at a manual labor job to support the family and mom stayed home to take care of us kids. She actually couldn't work because she was ill her whole life pretty much. And, but we made it work. Family life was great. Despite what was going on outside of the house, family was warm and loving and nurturing. And we got, you know, new clothes at the beginning of every school year and Christmas gifts and birthday gifts. So even though we didn't have a lot of money, I never felt that we were lacking and so my dad was very very involved with my brother and I he would have us in Little League uh, sports and and he wouldn't just drop us off and say okay I'll pick you up he was the assistant coach he had us in wrestling he had us in Cub Scouts and he really kept us active and I think because he didn't express a lot you know he was one of those you know Man who wouldn't express his emotions a lot, but he showed his affection and the quality time that he spent with us and and taking care of our needs. But I think he, he, he was adamant about doing that because he knew that the lure of the streets as we had gotten older was going to be profound. And so he wanted to, I think, shield us from all of that chaos by keeping us in very positive pro-social events. And so that was that was my childhood, more or less when I went into high school, everything changed for me as it does for many kids. But for me in particular, I was incredibly shy. And so it was very hard to meet new people, talk to girls, things like that. Well, there was a guy in our school that everybody looked up to. I mean, he was, he was like a demigod. I mean, he was, he was a gang member, well-known gang member. Um, The guys feared him. The girls loved him. Everybody wanted to be around him. And The fact is he was somewhat close to my family. So we kind of had the end role to be able to, you know, befriend him and hang out, you know, hang out with him and by proxy, you know, become popular. And so we did that. But with that came a lot of consequences as well, because he was also into stealing cars, skipping school, smoking weed, you know, you name it. And so, yeah,
0: let me, let me stop you real quick. Mm -hmm. Cause I, I like, I think the beginning is so important that you felt loved and you felt supported. And that is not, especially if you come from certain areas, that is not the norm. Correct. Right. Do you, do you look back on like your younger years and say, well, I could, it could like my, the trouble could have started earlier. Like, how do you feel about like what you just said? Cause I think that's really important. If you had the in and you're a shy kid and then you have this in with somebody that's like notorious, right? right. And and like obviously living in, in in an impoverished impoverished neighborhood. Tell me about like tell me about that. Tell me about the fact that you think that you you would have gotten involved earlier like your dad obviously was very supportive cuz that's huge cuz i think a lot of times you hear stories about that and i would love to hear your thoughts on that
1: right and so you know the underlying need that all of us have as human beings we've all seen the mm-hmm. you know seen the pyramid and the hierarchy of needs from the lowest you know basic physical needs being met all the way to the you know the highest um self actualization or reaching your fullest potential but there's a need for for social belonging in there as well, right And we typically yeah. get that from our primary you know caregivers and our family. and so that that initial kind of social environment is what produces that. Now for people who don't get that at home where the parents are neglectful and they're off running the streets or just you know or, or, or abusive, in fact, um, people will seek that kids will seek that elsewhere. And so whoever is is willing to give them that attention and what feels like love, even though we know it's often a lot, you know, something more devious than that, um, but kids will gravitate, you know, to that. And so that's why you see so many young kids at ages 10, 11, 12, finding themselves, you know, carrying guns and selling drugs and, and following these other gang members, because to them, that's love, that's acceptance, that's belonging, that gives them you know, a a sense of importance. And so if if it's not met at home, then they then kids or anybody is likely going to look to find that somewhere else. But because that wasn't lacking in my household, I didn't have this, you know, overwhelming need to take to the streets at a very young age to try to go find that belonging. Of course, we know that just, you know, biologically and socially, that changes when we get to you know, we reach adolescence and we get to high school, mm-hmm. then the peer group takes on a much more prominent role in, in an adolescent's life and obviously are, are subject to much more uh, influences.
0: Well, I think, too, it's it's an interesting point because it's like I'm a parent, you know, we can do whatever we try to be as involved as we can with our kids lives. And my kids are fortunate. We try to give them everything we can Um including love, but it's, you get to a certain point as a human being and you just want to be accepted. So no matter where you live or where you're from, like an example, you know, would be where you grew up, you wanted to feel the love, get into high school and have friends because you were a shy kid, but that really had nothing to do with your upbringing or your parents. It had to do with the fact that as human beings, we want to be accepted.
1: Exactly. One hundred percent. And I'll just I'll just add another layer to that for me, because even though my brother, you know, we're twins, so we did everything together when I started skipping Mm -hmm. school and, you know, drinking and and smoking weed and doing those things, he was right alongside me. But mine manifested much deeper because going back to my Cub Scout years around nine, 10, 11 years old, I remember this distinctly. So so we lived in the hood. Terrible place. 15 minutes away at our at our Cub Scout meetings, it was a predominantly white, middle class neighborhood. And so Mm -hmm. we would drive over there and I'm looking at a totally new world of manicured lawns and, you know, no trash on the street and the homes, you know, were clean and new furniture. And it was the total opposite from 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 where I lived. And so in my 10 or 11 year old brain, when we would drive back to our crime ridden neighborhood, I started to think, well why is it that all white people live that way mm-hmm. and all black people as far as I knew at that time lived the way that I lived? So what is inherently wrong with me that would confine me to living in this environment? Right. And so and so, and so that be, that was kind of the start of my, you know, uh, poor self-esteem and lack of a healthy concept, self-concept and things like that. That only, you know, became exacerbated as I went throughout high school and started to think of myself in this world as a person and what my prospects would be.
0: Well, I think, too, not to like bring in race, but I I do think it's important and I have a responsibility just like you do to talk. I think it's so important to talk about these things because it isn't right and it isn't fair and the cards are not dealt evenly. So in a lot of ways, I, you know, I, I have white privilege, period. I do, you know, I grew up, I never had to, I never had to want for anything. I got sent to boarding school, you know, grew up with money, um, went, went to college for free. It wasn't even like a thought in my head, you know, and then thinking about it. Like I think it's so important for people to take themselves out of their own lives and living in like a selfish bubble of understanding that the cards are not dealt evenly. It's just a fact. And when people say that that's not a fact, I get really fired up because I, I don't think it's fair. So I think if you grow up in a certain community Obviously, like that, like take yourself out of the picture. If you are a white, a person of growing up with white privilege, I grew up in personally in Washington D.C., and it was the opposite. I would drive into the where my my dad grew up in Chevy Chase, but going down into like parts of D.C. for me, I was like, I can't even understand how this would be. Like, why is this not the same for everybody? And I think it's important. To point that out, because it's almost like as a young kid, you're dealt a hand of cards and it's what you do with it. But you also have to understand that you're a young kid. And I'll give you examples recently. I live in Los Angeles. There's all kinds of crime going on right now. Um, There was just like these smash and grabs in downtown uh, Manhattan Beach. So these young kids, I watched the video. 14 kids they looked like they were maybe 15 16 years old going into a store and everybody's up in arms you know like this is this is like like who are these thugs and yeah I get it like people are mad because that's our town and we live in a small town but then you have to take yourself out of the picture as well and realize that you know one kid maybe said let's do this and then the other kids went along with it these are still kids and I just right. want to, I'm sorry, I, a lot of times I get on my soapbox, I will never okay. understand. I will never understand what, what life was for you growing up, just like you won't understand what my life was for me growing up. But I think the most important thing and the reason why we're having all of these issues all over our country is because people just learn, need to learn how to speak to each other and understand and make things right. more fair. Period, period.
1: No, I mean, well said. And 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 before I get back into the story, I will say, and you know, because the the white privilege term is a very can be a very incendiary term where a lot of people are offended by that because they say, well, no, I grew up tough and I had to work for everything, and so and so, it's not implying that that white people who are successful didn't work to get what they have. What it is saying, yeah. the way I interpret it. Is that you didn't your your white skin did not uh, serve as a barrier to you you know uh, having upward mobility right y- your skin mm-hmm. did not hinder you being able to apply yourself and get to where you are whereas somebody who was black brown or otherwise you know that is a barrier right they do have to contend with the fact that well I am black but you know hopefully I can still you know be afforded the same opportunities if I work hard as someone who is white would be able to have. And so it's not saying that you didn't work hard to get what you have. We're just saying you didn't have any roadblocks as far as your skin color is concerned that would have prevented you from getting there. That's it.
0: And I think too, that's something that people really need. If more people thought about that, like in a way where it's like, you're not, nobody's attacking you. We're not using white privilege to say you're a bad person we're saying it like you were born with a hand of, or at least I'm saying this, you're born with a deck of cards. The deck of cards is a lot easier, period. It's a fact. It's a fact a hundred percent. And it's, if more people thought about that, maybe there wouldn't be so much dif- divisiveness. I'm very Pollyanna about certain things. And that's one of them. It's like, take yourself out of the situation. Don't be so selfish and think about, What it's like for people, no matter what color your skin is, people have cards dealt against them. That's part of why I do this podcast. The girl that I was telling you about in the beginning, you know, grew up not with very didn't have any money, ended up stripping like she didn't have any other like and she didn't have any other outlets. And so people need to understand that. And it's something that I think is really important to talk about. I'm going to shut up because I tend to talk too much. But I do want to ask you, going back to your story, what, like, so you got yourself involved in the family friend in high school, and then that's when kind of you started to like go down the wrong path, correct?
1: Exactly. So I remember he had taken my brother and I to a party and there was all these people there and they're drinking and smoking and doing all that. And we had never done anything to that point. I think we're like 15. And he brings us over a couple cans of beer and obviously with the expectation that we're going to drink. And we're looking at each other holding these cans of beer. He had gone off somewhere else. And my brother and I are looking at each other thinking there's no way we can drink this. Like mom and dad would kill us. We, we weren't raised this way, but we also know that we're amongst these people who we want their acceptance. We want to be cool. We want to fit in. So like we, we have to do it. And I remember for me, I had taken the first few swigs and i mean it was disgusting of course but the yeah. feeling that it gave me like all the inhibitions came down i was able to just feel free and sociable and laughing and talking to people like i had never done before and i'm like oh my god this is this is like a miracle drug to me that just allows me to finally be the person that i've I've so wanted to be but just couldn't get over my own shyness and so that was kind of the beginning of my drinking for the next year. It was mainly in a social setting to you know loosen up and have fun and talk to people. but when i when i got uh, when I turned sixteen years old, things started to, you know take a much a much darker turn because now, you know, i'm I'm looking at my, you know, I only have a couple more years in high school. I'm going to be expected to go out into the world. What am I going to do? Who am I going to be? So this whole identity crisis started to manifest. Because on one hand, I'm, I'm, you know, in the hood with my friends, you know, trying to be a gangster, even though I wasn't. And, you know, mm-hmm. carrying a gun and selling drugs, even though I was terrified because that just wasn't me. But I'm trying to gain that acceptance. But then I would go to work after school because my parents made sure we worked always. And all of my coworkers were, were white teenagers. And they all, you know, they had cars at 16 and, you know, they're living a the life. So I wanted to hang out with them. So I would literally change my wardrobe. I would go from the, the baggy gangster clothes to like the polo and the Tommy Hill figure and the preppy stuff. And I would change my vernacular and I would t- talk totally different. And so I was literally going back and forth between two worlds to gain that acceptance because I had no identity. Right. And, and and so in psychology, you either establish an identity or you're in role confusion is what they say. You don't know what your role is in this world. And so that was such a painful conflict for me that it was just much easier to to drink. And so I would literally find myself locking myself in my room, turning on some sad music and drinking until I passed out every night.
0: What what age were you? 16. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I was 16. That's so hard. Yeah, and it's also, like, that's got to be so awful on a young – I mean, you're so young at 16. Like, you're a baby. And just having to balance out, like, just at the root of it, was just wanting to be accepted, right? you know? Right.
1: And and so, you're right. I mean, that was, that was at the crux of, of my addiction. And so, I was a full-blown alcoholic by age 16. I drank – before I went to school, I drank during my lunch breaks. I drank after school. I just drank because I didn't. It was too hard to cope otherwise. So fast forward into New Year's Eve of 2003. I was working at a warehouse at the time. I lived in Vancouver, Washington, with my girlfriend, and I worked in Portland, about a half hour away, just across the bridge. You're in Portland, Oregon. So it it, it was any normal day, New Year's Eve, 03. I Kissed my girlfriend, goodbye, headed to work, 6.30 in the morning. We had gotten off work early because of the holiday, and it's about 11.30 or so, and we're wrapping up, ready to clock out. And as we're doing that, I can still hear my boss joke with us and say, now you guys go out and have a good time tonight, but don't let me wake up and see you on the front page. And, of course, you know, we laugh it off and, you know, clock out. I went straight to the liquor store. I bought a fifth of gin. I then proceeded to my parents' house to hang out with my twin brother because that's where he was living at the time. So I get to my parents' house and I hang out with my twin brother. And then he and I had made plans for later that night to attend a friend's house party, a guy we had gone to high Mm -hmm. school with. And so I drank the fifth of gin over the course of two or three hours. I then went back to the store where I bought four 24-ounce cans of beer. Now, if you're doing a quick math on that, that's 96 ounces of beer that I consumed between the hours of five and eight o'clock that night. So then my brother and I decided we would go to another friend's house in the meantime to hang out. You know, we didn't want to get to the party too early. So we get to that friend's house, the three of us, you know, hang out. We drink a pint of Hennessy together, kill some time. It's now about 11 o'clock. So we, we exit his apartment to go to the party and he was living with his mom at the time. And as we're leaving, she says, now you guys go out and, you know, do your thing, but please, please, please be careful. And of course, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You know, obviously, we had no intentions of being careful that night. so we yeah. we get to the party, we drink more alcohol, of course, have a lot of fun, bring in the new year. Everything is great. I exit the party. we exit the party at about twelve fifteen, get into my vehicle. Now, for anybody thinking, well, why didn't his friend or his brother take his keys? Clearly, he's too, intoxicated. Sadly, if I'm being honest, this is something that we did every day. All of us. Mm-hmm. We just never thought mm-hmm. twice about it. And so we get in my vehicle. I take my friend home without incident. I get back onto the freeway to take my brother home. And at this point, all I'm thinking about is how exhausted I am because I've been drinking all day. And I think I had one fast food meal at about 4.30. And so I just want to get my brother home so I can go home and go to sleep. because I know I didn't have to work the next day. So I began to elevate my speed to about 80 miles an hour. And this makes my brother Mm -hmm. nervous. He says, hey, man, you know, you should slow down. The police are out. It'd be in the holiday and all. And I thought that makes sense. So I went ahead and slowed down, but more or less just to keep him quiet. So we exit the freeway Mm -hmm. about 10 minutes later. We're now driving in a residential area. And again, I begin to pick up my speed now to about 60 miles an hour. And he, you know, he starts to yell at me, slow down before we crash. And I snapped back at him. Calm down. I know what I'm doing. I got this. And mm-hmm. um, so I, but I did slow down just to, you know, kind of settle him a little bit. So we're nearing the block, our parents block where I'm going to drop him off. And then he suddenly realizes he's all out of cigarettes. So he says, hey, bro, let's let's go up the street so I can get some cigarettes. I'm all out. And I'm thinking in my mind. Great. You know, here's one more stop that I don't want to have to make. I just want to go home and go to sleep. So we drive for literally two more blocks and then about two blocks from that point, there's an intersection and I'm looking up at the light and the light is yellow. And as intoxicated as I was, I still knew there was no way I was going to make this light, but it didn't matter. I just want to get these stupid cigarettes and go home and go to sleep. So I immediately, you know, just punch the gas. I'm like tunnel vision, not seeing anything to the right or left of me. And literally within like three or four seconds, if that, Just boom. I mean, just this earth shattering crash. And the airbag envelops my face and my car comes to a slow winding halt. And I, I, I feel okay. So I'm like, okay, I'm still alive. This is good. I immediately look to my right. I see my brother who appears to be okay. So I'm I'm somewhat relieved at this point. A guy comes rushing up to the driver's side door frantically. Are you guys okay? Are you guys okay? Yeah, we're okay. I tell them. And I step out of my vehicle and most decent people would go check on the people they had just hit. But at the time, I was so consumed and self-absorbed with all this superficial, these superficial things that I, you know, that I had leaned on and relied on to, to convey a sense of importance. I'm devastated because I'm I'm looking at my my prized possession, my vehicle that I worked hard for. It's in a heap of crumpled metal at this point. And I'm just crushed by that. And then my brother gets my attention and he says, hey, man, he starts to point across the street. He says, I think I see somebody done down there on the pavement and I don't think they're moving. So then I kind of snap out of it. And I'm like, oh, my God, what have I done? But then within seconds, as you can imagine, the lights and sirens are everywhere, so the policemen are on the scene and they're talking to me and they, they take my brother a few feet away to talk to him. And the, the officers are interviewing me about how much i had had to drink that day and should I have been driving and things like that. And I feel terrible about what had happened. So I'm just you know admitting everything because, again, I feel terrible. And the officer had confirmed to me about five minutes into that interview that that person who was lying on the pavement had, in fact, died. And he mm-hmm. informed me that they were taking another one to Emanuel Hospital, just blocks away, by ambulance. And so, you know, I'm placed under arrest. Of course, I'm put in the back of the cruiser. We head downtown for processing. And from the back seat, I'm listening to the police radio because there's a lot of chatter, obviously, about the crash. And so, I'm trying to listen from the back seat, and it hear what what I thought had come over that radio. About 10 minutes later that unbeknownst to me, there was another passenger who had been pronounced dead at the scene. And so I asked the officer, I said, excuse me, sir. I said, did I just hear that correctly? Did they just say that there was somebody else in that vehicle who had died at the scene? And he said, unfortunately, yes. And so that that became the the very worst day of a lot of people's lives.
0: Wow. Okay. well, I'm. Like, I'm speechless. Um, I can't even imagine because there's this, the part of me that is like, oh my gosh, like people died, you know, and, and like that you can't help but be like judgmental in this situation. Right. But then there's also the other part of me that's heard your story thus far and can, I already can tell you're, you're a good human, you're a good soul. I just can already feel it. I know it. Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I feel like I've been using Claritin-D for probably a few months now, and I have really noticed a difference. I can work out I'm not feeling like my eyes are watering and my nose is all stuffed up. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so You Can Live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best-kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. What was that like? What was that like in your mind? I mean, you obviously probably had sobered up pretty quickly knowing, my God, I just killed two people with with my car.
1: Right. So there was, there was, Obviously a lot to try to process, but I would be, I would be remiss if I also didn't, you know, if I wasn't honest about the fact that I had calculated my young life at 24 years old, I knew that I felt at that time it was over. I mean, yeah. so you're responsible for two innocent people that you had never met, no longer being here. Another person I knew was going to the hospital. They could potentially die, you know, with life threatening injuries. But then I also knew the law in Oregon since 1995 There is a mandatory minimum law that requires, regardless of how you spend your time in prison, you will do 120 months, otherwise known as 10 years, day for day for DUI manslaughter. Doesn't matter. No circumstances, no mitigating circumstances, nothing. You will do 120 months for every manslaughter. Now I have two of them in the first degree. So I'm like, I'm gone for 20 years. Like I won't see my neighborhood that I'm driving through on my way to downtown for processing. I won't see this place for 20 years. So just trying to grapple with all of that, it just, it, just, it, it, it was, I mean, I can't even describe it. To say it was devastating or crushing or jarring or, I mean, all of those are inadequate terms. It was, it was just a terrible, just the worst feeling I had ever felt. And so, but three. Can I ask
0: you, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but the the two people that died, was it out of one car and.
1: Yes. So they were, they were in the intersection looking to turn southbound on, on a main street and I was just flying Mm -hmm. northbound. So I literally T-boned them. They were in a little tiny 1988 Jetta, probably didn't even have airbags. I don't know, but I mean, they just never stood a chance because the black box in my vehicle registered my speed, full speed, there was no deceleration at any point because I never saw them, at 66 miles per hour on impact. Just a full acceleration at 66 miles right into the driver's side door. Their car spun, I think it was 60 feet, and the person who had wound up on the pavement had been ejected through the back windshield onto the pavement because the impact was so great.
0: Was it, was it like a family, a couple?
1: So, so I would later find out. So three days later I'm in my cell and I'm just minding Mm -hmm. my own business. And someone had, someone had slid the, the Oregonian newspaper, which is a statewide newspaper. They had slid it underneath my door and I couldn't understand why. And I begin to thumb through this newspaper and I see my picture on the front page of one of the sections. And of course it's about the crash. And it was then that I learned for the first time in days who my victims were. And these people had an incredible Mm -hmm. story. And their story was that they were recovering addicts who had turned their lives around and were now helping others get clean and sober. They would watch women's kids so they could attend AA and NA meetings. They were volunteers with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, believe it or not. They were volunteers at Volunteers of America. They were active and 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 you know advocates in the recovery community in fact that very night they were returning home from a clean and sober new year's eve party when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver and so the the columnist of the paper he had talked about how you know that is a palpable irony is what he called it that they would be so devoted to all this work in helping people get clean and sober only to be killed by a drunk driver and he 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 ended with a phrase that, that, that changed the next 17 and a half years of my life. I'll never forget it. He said, quote, perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them, end quote. Mm-hmm. And even though I couldn't fully grasp, you know, the meaning of that and how it was supposed to apply to my life, I knew that I had to figure it out. Like I had to figure out what those profound words were were supposed to mean for my life. And so I just, you know, I prayed about it. I meditated on it. I would literally hear that phrase go through my head like 20 times a day. And then it finally came to me that the only way this tragedy will not be in vain is if I carry on their legacies. And if I literally try to do everything in my human power for the rest of my life to try to prevent other families from having to go through this just sheer, you know, catastrophic devastation and so that's what that's you know that's when I committed to this 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 mission and uh just to answer your question really quick so there were two friends who had passed away and then the the lone survivor of the collision had he was a man he had just proposed to his fiance the driver that night at that new year's eve party in front of all of their friends I mean, you just—I mean, I literally just got chills as I said that because you just, like, you can't. That's what it was.
0: I, I mean, it breaks my heart because it's like you made a mistake, and you, the intention is of a drunk driver. Unless, I mean, let's let's be real—nobody gets behind the wheel of a car because they want to kill somebody else. I mean, I'm maybe that's happened, but I would say no. I mean, the intention is people, I mean, I, even as a young teenager, to be honest with you, got behind the wheel when I had too much to drink. And, um, I remember at one point I was in high school and I was, I know I was drunk driving. I should never have done it. It's, it was an odds thing. I got out lucky, you know, and I was, and I drank a lot. And you know, and I openly will admit that because I think it's something that people need to hear. Um, we're all very, you know, if I were to have picked up that paper, um, I would have been like, Martin, what a monster, like the things that people think, I mean, this is just a fact and you're not a monster, but it is what you decided to do with your life moving forward. We're all given we're all, life is a set of choices and tests, in my opinion. Um, and if you are spiritual, which I am, um, sometimes we go through these things in life and we're like, what? Why? Why me? Like, why is this happening to me? In some ways, you have to wonder why this happened to you. Ultimately, is to make you a better human which is what I already know you are from just the brief conversations we've had. So, um, you know, you, you, when people make mistakes in life, like massive mistakes, like you made a mistake, you did your time, which we're going to talk about right now, but it's about forgiveness and it's about forgiving yourself. Those people, you know, may people may not be able to forgive you because that that's just a fact. But I just wanted to point that out because I'm not saying in any way like, oh, I agree with drunk driving or you did the right thing getting behind the wheel. But I just want people more people to think about the fact that you made a mistake, you know, and, and people make mistakes and get behind the wheel of a car every single day and it's about really thinking about it and i and and your intention going into it was like you were a young kid and you made a bad decision you know so let's talk a little bit about um what happened next so you then got, got put on trial and then you went were put in prison so i i took a plea bargain
1: for 17 and a half years day for day in the state of Oregon and so there was no motive to you know, get an education or stay out of trouble because I couldn't earn a single day off of my sentence for good behavior or having a job or getting an education. I just couldn't. So mm-hmm. the sheer motivation was following through because at my sentencing after I got sentenced and they did the the um, the the victim impact statements and things like that. I stood up and addressed the, the packed courtroom and the families and the friends and the community and the media. And vow to spend the rest of my life. I said, I know it's not much consolation, but I vow to do everything I can to prevent others from doing the same thing. So that was my fuel. When I got to state prison uh, about a month later, I went to the education department and asked to be a tutor. And I, you know, became a tutor in the GED program. And then I learned through being in that environment that I could take a college course for 25 bucks at a time. And, you know, start from there. And I didn't know how, you know, education worked. I figure if I take enough classes, they'll give me a degree. I don't know. So I did that. And then fast forward three years uh, when I lost my dad, um, we, we we were able to get his pension and and some life insurance money. And I thought, well, what better way to honor him than to invest in my education and my future and this goal, right? This mission that I set out on. And so I started taking classes at Louisiana State University and because you have to pay for all of it. Right. You don't get any federal Pell grants for prisoners. And that went away in the 90s. And Mm -hmm. thankfully, it's coming back actually next year. I'm very, very happy Mm -hmm. about that. But I had to pay for all that myself. So I take classes at Indiana University and Louisiana State. And I parlay all of these credits into an associate's degree in 2010. And I went on to get a bachelor's in sociology in 2013, and then I wound up with a master's in psychology in 2016. And meanwhile, you know, throughout this whole journey, I'm not just taking courses and passing them and getting credits and getting degrees. I'm starting to finally uncover and unravel all of these youthful motivations And deficiencies and shortcomings and the psyche behind it. And why did I justify this? And why did I rationalize that? All of these these, you know, this tangled web of of self-deceit and irrationality and poor choices. And it all started to make sense. Right. I could trace it back to its origins. And then I was able to actually use that knowledge and my personal experience to talk to some of the younger guys in prison that I was working with on their GEDs because you know, prison, as you know, <laughs> you don't have to be there to know that it's not the safest place to be vulnerable. And so mm-hmm. when guys, they would seek me out, I'd be on the yard and I'd be, you know, jogging and working out, you know, by myself. I did a lot of time by myself because I didn't want to, you know, run with this this group or that group. That wasn't me. So guys saw that I was different and they saw that I was consistent in how I did my time. And so they would seek me out and they would start to talk to me and open up about childhood traumas or their fears or their concerns or dreams or hopes that they have for the future and so i was able to build that rapport and start to you know counsel a little bit and so that was kind of the 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 affirmation um or the reaffirmation that the counseling you know that's for me that's where i need to be so but in order to do that you got to get clinical hours right to get state certified so i actually transferred to another prison at that time i've been there for 10 or 11 years, almost 11 years, transferred to another prison. And it was the only prison in Oregon that is at a medium custody level because all the the, the minimum custody level prisons, that's where you get all the the treatment and the programs because they figure you're on your way out. We want to make sure you're equipped. If you're at a medium Mm -hmm. level status, just based on the amount of time that you have, you don't have access to that. There was one prison that offered a substance abuse treatment program. So I talked to the clinical director. I said, here's my goal, I've got my master's degree. Can I get clinical hours under your, your supervision? He said, we normally don't do that. We don't have any sanctioned program for that. But because you have shown me and demonstrated that you're committed to this you know, this profession and, and this work, I'll make an exception. So I went through the program as a participant for seven months, I then started to mentor the guys, I would lead the groups, I would do assessments, did all the clinical work. Got certified uh, through the state of Oregon in 2019. And then I released uh, two years later in 2021. So I've been out for a year and almost a month now.
0: Wow. And how do you feel? I mean, that's very impressive that you were able to do all of those things. I'm sure you have a million stories about prison. I can't imagine how (laughs) how difficult that was. But just to turn your life around How were you able just sitting in, I don't, I'm pretending like I know what prison's like just from TV, but having those hours like alone or within your thoughts, um, how did you, were you able to go on? And, and I want to point something out. There's. I had an author on, um, her name, her name is Nina Sossaman Pogue and her book is called hold on her her book is called this is not the end and i actually have it sitting on my desk so i was just looking at it um and it's a i would recommend you read it because we all have a this she talks about this in life we have a this in our life right and and she sadly she was a very successful tv reporter she's now a speaker um she she hit a little boy. She, she ran over his, him when she was backing out of um, a driveway Mm -hmm. and he survived, but she didn't want to go on. Like it was basically like she was suicidal, like all of the things that one would go through. And it was about how do I forgive myself? Like he did survive, but my question to you is, you know, in life, that was your this, but that's not really your this because you're so much more than that. So tell me about how you found the strength to forgive yourself, but also like ask for forgiveness. Are you spiritual? Did you ever connect with the family or the families? Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So I was in the county when I, when this whole thing happened, I was in the county jail awaiting trial or sentencing or what have you for about a year and throughout that whole year i had returned to my christian roots because i was you know brought up in the church and obviously when i got older i drifted away but it was still in me and so Mm -hmm. being that this you know tragedy had happened i returned to my christian roots so i would pray every day and pray that someday these people will be able to forgive me for this lo and behold that prayer was answered by and large at my sentencing because during the victim impact statements the majority of the family members of the two who had passed away had explicitly verbalized to me that they had forgiven me because they, they knew I didn't intend to do this. And Mm -hmm. so that was, that, that was really, you know, touching as you can imagine. And I had prayed to God and asked for forgiveness and I genuinely felt that God had forgiven me. But as you know, it's usually the hardest thing that we come to forgive ourselves. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. and so literally for the next three years, I remember it vividly for the month of December, the entire month of December, I spent a lot of time on my bunk. You know, I wasn't going outside to work out. I wasn't playing softball. You know, I wouldn't go to the chow hall. I would just make food on my like I I was I was in a state of depression because I was reliving From the moment I woke up that morning to the time, you know, I was in cuffs and headed downtown, I would relive every single event of that day. And I felt in a weird way that that was my way of like never forgetting what happened and honoring, you know, their lives. Right. Because if I I felt that if I was able to kind of just go on and be happy and cheerful and, 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 and live my life, even though I was in prison. You know, I felt that that was doing a disservice and a dishonor to them. And so I mm-hmm. I just lived in self-condemnation every December for the first three years. And then I said, you know what? I thought about, you know, this vow that I had made, even though I was doing the work and going to school and, you know, learning all about counseling and all that. You know, I I, I felt that I was holding myself back from really stepping into this this mission. Right. And I said, you know, I can't continue to plague myself in this way because if I'm going to follow through on this thing, like I said, I would, then I have to give all of my energy to this and I'm, I'm, I'm robbing myself and them in this mission of a full month's worth of this energy by sitting and, you know, kind of wallowing in, in this, this misery, frankly, and it wasn't mm-hmm. helping any, wasn't helping anybody. It wasn't helping them. Wasn't helping me. Wasn't helping the cause. And so when I kind of just understood that, in a, in, in in a real tangible way, then it it just, you know, I, I, I allow myself to kind of break free of those chains of bondage of self condemnation and, 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 and misery. And so that was the end of that, but it did take about three years for me to reach that point.
0: Did you, um, so when you actually, so you've been out now for a year, a little over a year. Mm -hmm. What is that like being out?
1: Um, it is, let me say, so I, you know, in 2015, I still had six years left. I started to speak at DUI victim impact panels within the prison. They would bring in volunteers who had, Mm -hmm. from the community who had lost loved ones to DUI drivers and they would tell their story. And then somebody from the inside would tell their story about how they were the, the offender of this. And it was a very communal healing, cathartic environment. I mean, you, you just can't replicate it anywhere. But that was the beginning of me speaking at DUI Victim Impact Panels. So since I've been out, um, two months later, I spoke at my first one in the in city in Portland. I've spoken at I don't know how many now. I do them remotely every month with the trauma nurses at Emmanuel Hospital. I speak to kids who have gotten a minor in possession charge. And I speak, um, I'm getting set up here in Pennsylvania to speak at some and i'm looking when school starts i'll be looking to speak there as well so i've spoken at numerous impact panels that's been such a reward since i've been out i've you know gone skydiving and surfing and a cruise to the bahamas and you know las vegas like i had never traveled anywhere growing up and so mm-hmm. i knew when i got out like i just want to live and i want to experience life and to be doing it sober like 6 months before i got out I started to be overtaken by the fear of what if life is boring, sober? Like I I, 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 I couldn't remember yeah. being sober and living life out in the free world. And so a part of me feared that. But let me tell you, now, almost 13 months later, like I am living my best life. I, it is the most fulfilled I've ever been. I And I can remember what I did the day before, which is a beautiful thing. And so, yeah. and so life has been incredible. Again, I work as a drug and alcohol counselor, uh, a crisis intervention specialist. I work remotely right here from my office at, uh, in my home. I love my job. I'm able to travel. I speak, um, you know, I couldn't ask for a better life.
0: Well, let me ask you too about like, cause I know we're running short on time. I could talk to you for two hours cause <laughs> I find you pretty incredible. What what is it? So you got out with a job lined up and no. Okay, so tell me about that. No. Like to have the resources because you forever have like a scarlet letter on you, right? Right. So tell me about that piece of it.
1: Right. So Oregon as you know is one of the more liberal states. So I really honestly didn't feel in fact they even banned the box and what that means is they can't ask have you been convicted of a of a felon within the last however they can't even ask the question on an application in the state of Oregon? It is against the law, right?
0: Oh, I didn't know. They that. can okay. they can
1: ask you during the interview, but they cannot ask you on the application because they don't want people discriminated against for having a felony. Mm-hmm. So I didn't mm-hmm. feel that at least in Oregon that it would it would be a big hindrance. But um, so I applied. I had to learn about technology and all of that. So I I applied on Indeed and I uploaded my resume that I created in prison in a program before i got out as part of your release planning you leave with a little thumb drive you got your little resume on it pretty basic resume but it's something and so i just uploaded that and i did my first two interviews about a week later and got offered both jobs at at counseling places one was at a methadone clinic and the other is the one i have now and I got hired, but I almost didn't get hired because it had to go through uh, DHS in Oregon because of the nature of the job and and things like that. And so,
0: what is what is DHS again? I'm sorry, so
1: so just for my so department and myself. That's okay, Department of Human Services.
0: Oh. Da. I should know it's that. It's okay. okay. Go
1: ahead. It's okay. So I was
0: like, "Is that like a mailing company?" I'm so dumb. Go ahead. No, it's okay.
1: Ahead. So they they had to by committee vote to allow me this opportunity to do this job, and because I had done my time the way that I had, because I had accrued you know these these accolades and and, and certifications, they said this guy has earned a second chance, and so who are we mm-hmm. to hold him back from that? And so I am I am so grateful for that opportunity. And again, I'm spiritual. I know that nothing happens by accident. Everything happens for a reason. So I believe that, you know. I am where I'm supposed to be. I am talking to the people I'm supposed to every day, people who have no hope, people who are at at the end of their rope, be it they're struggling with, Mm -hmm. you know, a a, a mental health disorder or substance use disorder or, uh, you know, uh, family issues. I mean, you name it and i and i talk to those people every day and i wouldn't trade it for the world yes a very heavy heavy it's heavy work right but my job treats me very well i get a ton of pto so i can engage in my own self care you know what i mean so mm-hmm. i can continue to take care of myself and be okay and um you know i just i i like my life has so much purpose and meaning that 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 prior to this whole thing happening i was just aimless I had no sense of direction, no purpose. I'm kind of just existing, right? And it wasn't a great existence. And now I'm able to actually fully live and bask in the fruits of life and purpose and, and to do it sober. It's just the greatest feeling ever.
0: And and honestly, like you made a mistake, like a horrible, horrible mistake. But it's a, I think that people deserve chances. You know, like we're all so judgmental against each other and you did your time, you know, like you, you used your time. Well, I would imagine there's a lot of people I would say, I would love to know the statistic on people that got out of prison and change their lives for the better. Do you, can you touch on that? Because I don't really know the answer to that. I would love to know, you know a lot of people I would assume don't feel like they have a lot of hope once they get out. And so can you kind of touch on that?
1: Right. And the, the statistics vary from state to state, as you can imagine. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, Oregon, Oregon has like some of the best resources, pre-release and post-release for getting on your feet. Other places you can imagine Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, like there's just, there's just, there's no hope. I mean, I'm not saying yeah, no like hope. if
0: you did something wrong. You're done. Like, but, no wonder, like people go back to the streets and are repeat, like, end up being repeat offenders because they don't have the same opportunities. So that's a huge thing to point out.
1: Well, and the support system. So in prison, right, everything's structured. So a lot of people like they will thrive in prison because there is structure. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't have to think about a whole lot. You know that, you know, you're going to be fed three times a day. You can, you know, work a job. You can go and work out like you're in you're in good health. You have like there's not a whole lot for you to be responsible for. Right. Other than just making sure that you're where you need to be, you know, when you're supposed to be there. When you get out if you step out into society and there's literally Mm -hmm. no support there or very minimal support and your PO is demanding you have a job within 48 hours and you go to this program and you go, you don't have transportation, you don't have, you know, a place to stay like, you know, naturally the brain is going to revert back to what it knows. Even if mm-hmm. you have the greatest intentions, you cannot do this alone when you mm-hmm. come from a long period of incarceration. And we know that in America, people are sentenced to these, you know, ridiculous amounts of time, Right
0: for minor crimes or very yeah. minor
1: crimes. And, and, yeah. and the support is just not there when they get out. So it's no, it's, it's no wonder why people go back to, even though they get out with all this momentum and a new way of thinking and they're clean and they're healthy, but then they walk into, you know, no support and yeah. there's no structure and they revert back to what they, they know. Thankfully, out. I've got Thank family, out. I've got yeah. a fiance Uh, You know, my parole officer was like a a mentor or is like a mentor to me. It's just a lot more support in Oregon and in some other places than there are in in most of these other places who are not going to invest a single dime into somebody who has been convicted of a felony. They're just not.
0: But that's also like the biggest problem is people were like want to say oh, well, they did the time forever. Like, no, they're bad. They're bad, bad, bad. Like, don't deserve a second chance. Even if you got out, you still don't. And for in situations where, yeah, if it's a violent crime, uh, like 100 percent murder, rape, anything like that. I'm sorry, in my opinion, like that's just not like they shouldn't have the same resources as somebody that goes to prison, whether it be for drugs or, you know, like you made a mistake, got behind the wheel of a car and you were drinking. That's completely different. Um, but go ahead. Well, Thank no, I,
1: I, I think people just, people just, you know, they lose sight of the fact that, you know, I think it's like 95 or 96% of people across America will be released at some point. Right. There's only mm-hmm. a, a scant few who, who don't have a release date. So for those 95, 96 percent, if you know they're coming back into this world and into could be your community, you would think that you would want them to be equipped for society and, 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 and have the resources to actually rehabilitate. And I know it's still a choice, but believe me, most people want resources when they're in prison because they're clean, they're healthy, they're thinking straight, and they want the help if it's there. And so you would think the investment would be in that so that they can actually turn out to be good, law-abiding, tax-paying citizens when they release. Because guess what? They're coming back one way or the other. How do you want them to return when they return is really the question.
0: A hundred percent. And I don't think people think that way. I think that people just want to say, oh, they're bad. They're bad. They don't think of the reasons behind why people do the things that they do it, a lot of this comes down to mental health. It comes down to resources. It comes down to, uh, how you were brought up, all kinds of things, um, go into this stuff. And it's just, you know, I really am grateful that you came on and you shared your story and you're just an amazing example of a human being that is holding, holds themselves accountable, is honest saying, I made a mistake. I served my time. I made a mistake, period. But this is like how I'm going to turn my life around. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do these things. And honestly, like, I will tell you this. um, uh, Before I started this podcast and I basically had like my major meltdown breakdown a few years ago, um, I was not as nice of a person as I am now. I'm not nice to everybody. <laughs> I'm glad They're you're nice many- to me. And- I I like you, Martin, but I'm not, I mean, if you're a Karen and you get in my way, like it's on, I'm still not nice to, (laughs) I just don't want to talk to you. Get out of my space. I just want to be around good people. Yeah. But the best thing that you can do in life. And I say this all the time is like doing this podcast or talking to somebody that comes from a totally different background than I do. Like you and I night and day, completely different backgrounds, but this makes me it like fills my soul to spreading stories of like overcoming the worst things in life and get getting out the other side and to meet somebody like you that says, you know, I'm I'm doing this like a uh, teen like hotline where I'm helping teens that are struggling with their mental health or suicide, all of these things selfishly. I'm sure you can relate to this make us happy. They like this fills my soul. Our conversation today fills my soul because I know that our conversation is going to help one person out there. I say that every podcast, if I helped one person out there out of all of the, um, not to toot my own horn, but the many listeners that I'm grateful to have, thank you. Then that's what it's about. Right. And so you keep doing what you're doing. I think you're an incredible person I know we're going to keep in touch. I know I'm going to see the most amazing things out of you and your for the rest of your life. And um, and I think that you're an example of like why people need to understand that people make mistakes, but we do need to give people second chances. And um, and what you're not to quote my friend Nina, but that was not that was just a, a fraction of your life. Like it's your this in your life, but it's not your whole this. You have so much more of your life and so many great things that you can do with your life. And I want people to think about how people need second chances. So go ahead. Well, I just
1: want to say, no, I just want to say, thank you uh, so much again for this opportunity. You are doing incredible work by um, having these stories on uh, for humanizing, you know, those who have often been dehumanized and, and thrown away and cast away by society and actually putting, you know, uh, faces and stories and voices to, to, to these, these critical stories. And so I just want to thank you for, for your dedication to this work, addressing and normalizing mental health and mental health awareness and, and how we're, we're all in this together, no matter where we came from, what we look like, how we grew up, what our socioeconomic status is. We are human beings at the end of the day, and we we have an obligation, I think, to each other to try to to help one another so that we can collectively, as a human race, be better. And you are doing that. hundred percent. So thank you.
0: A hundred percent. And I'm great. I'm so grateful to have you say that. It makes me feel. It warms my heart, Martin. It really does. You made my whole day. <laughs> thank you. Um, but in closing, really quickly, everyone, if you're listening, I now push these episodes to YouTube. Um, I do not look so good on these YouTube episodes because sometimes I decide I'm just not going to wear makeup and I know I'm on camera. So if you follow me on judging Megan, I am wearing makeup and I do have my hair done. But a lot of times I'm just like, you know what, I'm going to put my glasses on, put my hair in a bun and I'm just going to chat. And if you want to watch this, you can go to YouTube if you want to follow Martin or Martin, where can people find you? Can you give, give out some of the information if somebody wants to reach out to you?
1: Sure. So on Instagram, that's the only social media that I have. Cause I swear I would not do social media, but Instagram is okay. <laughs> so I do Instagram yeah. at Martin L Lockett with two T's, or you can go to my website at martinlockett.com.
0: And do you also do public speaking? Like, I do doing speaking yeah you you kind of touched on that but I think you should be doing more um I think you're pretty great so I would love to see you Thank do you. that that's just my two cents um I also wanted to say real quickly if you listen to my podcast um every week they come out on Tuesdays please subscribe on Apple and leave me a review I would really appreciate it it takes about two seconds. Um, If you're not going to leave me a good review, then don't do it. But if you are planning on leaving me a good review, I would love it. And I'm so grateful to all of you. In closing, be happy by making other people happy. Thanks, Martin.